This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. And welcome to the BZE Community Radio Show. This is 3CR. Today we'll be heading across the Pacific to the coral atoll of South Tarawa, the capital of the Pacific Island nation of Kiribati. Now, Kiribati is 33 coral atolls and islands spread across three time zones, an area roughly the size of the USA. Recently, I travelled there and thought it would be a good idea to take you with me. South Tarawa is the most populated island. It's 40 kilometres long, but only a few hundred metres wide, so everywhere has ocean views. As the, the thin atoll turns around itself, so there is a lagoon at the centre, which is a gorgeous shade of aqua. It looks spectacular. The people of Kiribati, called the E-Kiribati, live mainly on fish and rice. Many live in thatch huts called dubuias. South Tarawa is also overpopulated, with 40,000 people on a tiny area, so that the density is like some Southeast Asian cities. People are trying to make more land by pushing out into the lagoon with sandbags and limestone. They crowbar off coral walls, and we'll learn about the effects of this later. Now, in the past few years, Kiribati has become a potent symbol of climate change. The previous president, Anote Tong, toured around Paris in 2015 trying to get the message out that his island, the unique way of life of his people, are drowning. That is, they are under existential threat due to climate change and rising seas. Now, I've been to the tallest point of South Tarawa, which is a paltry three metres above sea level. Without the small dented sign there, there'd be no other way to know. We will spend the whole show today in the Pacific. We have Dr. Paul Kench, who's the Dean of Science at Canada's Simon Fraser University. Paul has done some fascinating research on nearby coral islands of Tuvalu, which is another Pacific Island nation. What he found was might bring hope to the Pacific Island nation of Kiribati, as the atolls that he studied are actually expanding as sea levels rise. We'll also ask him about the role that narrative plays in the climate change movement. We'll also speak to Dr. Aaron Jenkins on the show. Now, Dr. Jenkins is Sydney University's only graduate from the School of Planetary Health. In fact, he's the only one in Australia. It was in a car ride through Fiji's capital, Suva, that Aaron told me about the School of Planetary Health Basic Thesis. It brings together multiple disciplines like public health, climate change studies, and environmental studies to get a more holistic understanding of the issues. It's one you'd never get looking at either of those disciplines on their own. But it would not make sense to have a show about Kiribati without talking to someone who, who's actually from there. Next up, first up, we have Pelanese Alofa. Now, she is the national coordinator for Kiribati's Climate Action Network, otherwise known as Kirikan. We've had Pelanese on the show before, but this time we'll be talking to her more about Kiribati. I heard her at Bill McKibben's talk. She's a very passionate speaker on, a pe- on the people of Kiribati, but I also think she's quite pragmatic as well. 
I chat to her about the future of her country and how Kiribati has served as a symbol in the climate change debate. Now, just one word. I chatted with her over the phone and unfortunately we got cut off before she could finish and I wasn't able to get back on. So the end of it is a little bit abrupt, but I thought it would still make a good interview and worth playing for you. Here is Pelanese Alofa. Hello, Pelanese. This is Kurt. How are you? Oh, hello. Hey, hey. I'm well, thank you. And you? Very well, very well. It's 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 really nice to, to speak to you. So would you just be able to start by explaining that the work the work you do for Kirikan? The work that we do with uh, Kiribati Climate Action Network is really and two two twofold. One is uh, awareness, raising awareness on mitigation. And that's what we do internationally. And the second one is we do awareness, advocacy awareness on adaptation to our communities. So I traveled around South Tarawa and I felt that the people were so nice and warm and very welcoming. And that made me feel quite bad as an Australian because obviously we're not doing enough. But I also didn't necessarily feel that the people there, uh, the ones that I spoke to, felt that their island, South Tarawa, and the other islands in Kiribati were going to be inundated in the near future. Um, what's, how do people feel about climate change at the moment? Well, people know that there is climate change, and they know because they've seen impacts. They've seen the flooding just the last few weeks, but no one believes that we will go underwater. Yes. You know? And no one will say, oh, you know, I'm going to be drowning. My island is going underwater. No, I've never come across anybody in Kiribati that says that. But they all believe that there is a change in our climate. There is a change in our environment caused by the global warming and all that. They know. But, you know, no one is talking about, you know, Kiribati. So my island is going underwater. No. Because there's obviously been a change of president, but the previous president, um, Anote uh, Tong, he, he said in an article that he wrote for New York Times that it's already too late for Kiribati, that it's, its fate is sealed. Do you think that doesn't seem like a very positive message and it doesn't seem like that seems a little bit hopeless? Yeah, it is hopeless. To many people who listen, it is hopeless. And I think I understand where he stands. It is hopeless if there is nothing that could be done right now. It is hopeless because nobody is negotiating and coming up with something right, really solid for in any agreement, any, any United Nations agreement on climate change, something solid for Kiribati to hang on. You know, yeah. a really good... Uh, what adaptation and how to mitigate and all that. No. We've been meeting for the last, what, 20, 24 years on climate change, but nothing has come up that it's really, um, what do you call, a binding agreement on climate change. And, and that's why you say, I can understand, that's why you said it's too late. Hmm? Yes. Because whatever happens now, Whatever happens now, if we are not doing anything, nothing, if we are not doing anything, it is already late for us. 
But at the same time, we also believe, no, we're not going underwater. It's, it's a personal feeling, you know. I don't want to go underwater, so I believe that. And I'm going to do whatever I could to stay yeah. above water. But at the same time, if nothing is happening, you know, globally, and people are not acting on, on climate change, then really we can do whatever we can do right whatever we can right now but maybe it's already late right so you're you're saying that if we do nothing then it's too late but there's still a chance now that's how you interpret uh the former president tong's words yes yes it, he says it's too late because because he's, uh, you know, he's been in government for 12 years and pushing for climate change, but nothing happens. So I can understand if I'm a leader, I say, oh, no, it's too late. Mm-hmm. Yes. I'm not him, but I can understand. I, I just feel maybe that's the way he was feeling right. then. It's hopeless. Yeah. Because I'm... nobody's taking it seriously. Yes. That just, it just as a message, it seems very counterproductive to, to give up like that and it seems that you always if if you have no hope then what's the point of doing anything that's that's giving up to me and i was interested yeah that's that's what kira kira's position is our position is uh, you know we continue to adapt and we continue to stay in kiribati we continue to do whatever we could do in kiribati and Nobody to move out of these safe zones. <laughs> it is a safe zone. Kiribati is one of the safest um, countries in the world. We don't have disasters. Yes. I think our, you know, disasters now are beginning to come. Like every, the last big disaster was in 2015. And then it came beginning or end of 2018 and 19. So like within three years, every three years. Maybe next time it will be within two years and then will be every year. We hope it doesn't do that. Talking about the, the current president, he's obviously moved away from acting on climate change. What, what, is, his, what is his position at the moment? No, no, no. It's not, it's, that's not right. Okay. That he's moved away from acting on climate change. He's, he's, um, he's, Message is the same as the old, the old president, except that he wants us to concentrate, he wants us to work and continue to develop and adapt in our own islands and not to think about, and not to what? Not to talk about migration. Because when we talk about migration, that means we really have no hope. People who migrate that, because of climate change, it's, it's an eternal and it's an, you know, that's it's the end of them yes. coming, you know, like there's no more island, there's no more Kiribati. And that's why, you know, when we do interviews with our people, mm-hmm. do you want to leave Kiribati? Oh, yes, we want to leave Kiribati. We want to go to Australia. We want to, do, we want to go to Fiji. We want to go to New Zealand. And when we say, do you want to leave Kiribati for good? You know, like yeah. there's no more Kiribati. They stop and they think about it and they say, no, we're not migrating forever to go for good. We're coming back. This is our home. But of course, we want to go overseas. We want to find jobs. We want to, it's all about economic reasons to support their families here. But to tell us that we, we have no more home, 
to go because we cannot live in Kiribati anymore. No, no, that's not that's not right. I don't want to move. See, there's a big change then. I noticed when I was on the island uh, in South Tarawa that the Kiribati had a very um, a, a unique culture. I sat around and I listened to songs that uh, in the, the house I was staying at and um, they played different music and they sat around on a Sunday afternoon drinking kava and it was it and, and the language how there's only I think 120,000 people that speak Gilbertese. Do you think that if if there was to be a migration that it would be very difficult to maintain that culture? Of course. Well, we know that culture all keep changing. Yeah. But there will be some aspects of our culture that we may lose, you know, completely. And that, you know, we hope that it doesn't. Some, and we can say, okay, we can sing, we can dance, we can tell stories, we can fish, we can weave mats, but, you know, we can be weaving something else, not weaving mats from the, from the pandemic tree if we move, because we may move to our country that does not have pandemic. We may use our skills to weave something else. A hmm? net, you know, um, from something else. From a, a grass or from a, we don't know, you know. But those are the things that will change. We may go with our skills, but we, you know, the materials that we will be using may be different. Hmm? And after some time, we may lose it altogether. Those are the things, but at the same time, we may be gaining some new skills, and and there'll be so much change in 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 the skills that we may come up with a new culture altogether, and a different accent altogether in speaking Kiribati. <laughs> mm-hmm. But the main important thing is the essence of our culture that we shouldn't lose is the values that we have, yes. and that is you know caring for one another, sharing. Mm-hmm. Caring for our old people, caring for our children. You know, in our culture, the elders are very important in our culture. How can we continue to look after our, el- our elders and love our elders and care for them the way we do if we say we're in Australia and we are in a culture where we have to work and work and work, you know, mm-hmm. and, and we have little time to look after our parents and our old people. Yes. We have to take them maybe to a home. And that is totally different. Yes. So those are the new things that may come up. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying they, they are changes. And we hope that, you know, those, the values that we have, like we really care for our old people and we respect them and we listen to them, it's not, you know, gone and diminished. Or we, lose, we have to lose it altogether. Do, do you think that Kiribati has become too much of a symbol for the climate change movement worldwide that people forget that people live there and that it's a that it's been sacrificed so that there's an example that people can point to and be like well it's too late here's a here's a country that has suffered through no fault of its own but through the fault of industrialized developed countries and it's already gone. It's as good as gone. People want from the outside when in, in, in fact it hasn't gone, that it, there, there is still hope. 
Do you think that's happened in the climate change movement? Um, it, it almost looked like that, yeah. Yeah. That, like, every, when people talk about Kiribati, oh, it's a country that is drowning. Hmm? Right. It's a country that is drowning. And, uh, and that's the sad thing about it because, they, you know, they're taking the context of our advocacy outside of Kiribati, like the first president, they think that, oh, he said it's, it's already too late. But I think what he's trying to say is it's too late because you are not doing anything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he's trying to make them think to do something about it. But if they, if they take it, you know, as it is, like it's too late, then it's too bad, you know? <sighs> I, think, I, I think we're trying to push people to, uh, to act to take some action because, because it is uh, it's, it's a disaster that is uh, global, it's, it's, it's um, a disaster that to, you know, will remove the whole uh, country and the people and all that. But if, if they take it on, at, on face value like that and no action is taking place, then it's, mm, it can be, very late, can be too late for us. Yes. But um, it's, it's not just Kiribati. We have, you know, the other countries are also pushing, you know, they are, voice, they are voicing their, their concerns like Tivalu, um, uh, Fiji, Solomon. Those people are already moving. Kiribati, we, we haven't really moved from one island, you know, the whole island moved. But in Papua New Guinea, people have moved. In Fiji, people have moved. But fortunately for them, they have, they have big countries, they have bigger countries that they can move to other places within their country. They've been displaced within their country. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, but Kiribati is, when we're pushing, when Kiribati is pushing right to the front, it's because we have no other place to move to. If we can move within our own, oh well, we have Christmas Island, those other islands, yeah, but, those islands are just the same as Kiribati. Our the, where we live right now, they're all flat and still have the same problem that we have here. We really do not have any place to go to compared to other countries, yeah. and that's why for us it is important that people people listen. You know, um, politicians listen to our voices and act on it. And it's not if they really want to, they really care for us, and they will help us to stay in Kiribati. Not to leave Kiribati, but to stay in Kiribati and help us to adapt in Kiribati to the problems that we have. Yes. We have nowhere else to go, but at least they can help us to stay here. So I'm interested in... You, you, so if, if you, you're asking whether we've been sacrificed, if we, if we are the sacrifice for the whole Pacific Islands, why not? What's wrong with that? Because mm -hmm. our voice... It's the same, we are speaking the same as all the Pacific Islanders, the other countries. But for us, we are vulnerable because we have no other place to move to. For them, they do have a place to move to. I am interested in talking about, you use that word adapt. So I've been looking at some of the research done by Paul Kench, uh, I'm sure you know, and they're talking about the ability for atolls, coral atolls, which 32 of 
Kiribati's islands are coral atolls, their ability to grow to uh, mm -hmm. and and do you think there's a chance to save Kiribati from rising water with the way that coral atolls grow? How I believe so. This, I don't believe that there's nothing on, under, the, under the sun. There's no technology under the sun that, that can help Kiribati. There is. Hmm? There is countries that were able to stop water from coming onto their land. And there are, there are countries that were able to build islands. Again, big apologies for the quality and the abrupt ending of that call. Um, we had to do it way over the Pacific, and uh, it's, I think it's all done through satellites, so the quality is not, not super good. And unfortunately, we got cut off, and I wasn't able to um, connect back again. Next up, we will have uh, Dr. Paul Kench, who will give a little bit more context to that last discussion that we had with um, Pelanese. Uh, but before we do, I'd just like to um, take you across to when I was at Kiribati. Now, it was a Sunday afternoon, um, and everyone had just been to church. And the place that I was staying, I, it was just a homestay. And I noticed everybody gathering around, very relaxed. They all gathered around a bowl of kava, and they began singing songs. Now, Ataya, who was this young man who lived in one of these Dubuias, which is this thatched hut, invited me to sit around with his family and I was able to record some of the songs. So I'd just like to play you one of those songs, which I think are really, really beautiful, to give you some kind of an idea and context as to what would happen, the type of rich culture that would be lost should Kiribati succumb to rising sea levels from climate change. <coughs> Oh, that's not 
Bravo. <laughs> and now on to Dr. Paul Kinch. When I was in Kiribati, I spent a lot of time on the most populated coral atoll, South Tarawa. It is a thin strip of land turned in on itself so that there is a lagoon in the centre. A few of the people who had been there for a long time could talk about the atoll, how it had changed over the years. An island in the lagoon would disappear, then years later it would reappear. I have with me the Professor of Geomorphology and Dean of Science, Paul Kench, uh, who has recently moved into to Simon Fraser University, uh, which is in uh, Canada. Paul has studied coral atolls and coral islands at nearby Tuvalu for the period from 1971 to 2014. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you. So I've read uh, patterns of island change and persistence offer alternative adaptation pathways for atoll nations. I found it really, really fascinating. Could you just sum up the findings very quickly for our listeners? Sure. We, we undertook an analysis of how uh, the islands of Tuvalu, so this is every island in that archipelago, uh, had changed over approximately a 40-year window. And so we used satellite uh, images and aerial photographs that have been taken sequentially over that time frame and mapped the footprint of the island. And uh, I, in a nutshell, what we found is that the majority of islands there have um, expanded on the reef platform, essentially got larger, and have, have most of them have also moved on the reef platform. We only found a very small number of islands uh, that have actually got smaller over that um, you know, half a century. And the rest had... Um had expanded. Yeah, so the I think some of the 85% of islands had got essentially got larger or had, or had at least stayed the same size, uh, but all of them had actually moved or changed uh, on their reef platform surface. I think the method that you used is really, really interesting in its own right. So you used old aerial photography, is that right? Uh, well, we, the, the, the earlier images that we have are, yes, so it's vertical aerial photographs um, that, that were flown from that area. And from about the early 80s, um, we were able to use uh, satellite imagery. Right. And how come you didn't take it back a little further? Because I know that area was used very heavily in the Second World War. Were you able to kind of uh, use older photography to get a, a, a stronger conclusion? Yeah, sure. Um, well, we have, there's another paper we've written a few years ago, uh, which focused on the capital atoll, uh, Funafuti. Um, and we were able to go back over 100 years on that particular atoll. Wow. Uh, and that goes right back to when the British Royal Society sent out an expedition in the late 1800s and they undertook a very meticulous mapping of every single island in that in that mm. atoll. And that, as you alluded to, um, Tuvalu became uh, essentially the US military's aircraft carrier in, in World War II uh, when it started to take back uh, the Pacific. Uh, and so from that period, there are some very good uh, black and white uh, aerial images. So we were able to chart a whole history of change, uh, century of change for Funafuti, why we didn't use that in the most recent paper is that for a lot of the outer islands, we they don't have uh, that right. long uh, data set, and we were trying to use a more consistent data set um, for the entire nation. I, I'm, I'm really interested in what the implications of your findings. Um, and so 
do you, has anyone done any work of how how it would be possible or trying to think about how it would be possible for humans to continue operating and existing with a sense of continuity when the atolls themselves are, dy- are changing so dynamically as the land changes beneath their feet sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, this, I mean, this raises um, a really interesting question. And I guess one thing that we would start from, so we've worked on different aspects of how the islands change, how they can get larger. And, and actually one question that that paper doesn't uh, examine is, well, are the islands actually getting higher as well? Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, one thing we would stress is that we haven't just started to observe islands changing, but islands have actually changed on their reef platform. Uh, ever since they've been formed. So it's a continual uh, co-adjustment uh, between oce- oceanic processes and wave processes um, that drives uh, season to season, year to year, decade to, to decade changes in what these islands look like. So in, in many ways, um, island communities have been living um, continually with these sorts of changes uh, throughout the history of occupation of these islands. And there are examples in other archipelagos, in the Maldives, for example, uh, where communities have quite regularly moved from one island to another right. uh, in, in response to changing environmental conditions. One of the, uh, I guess, the, the, the modern twist on that is that in many of the islands, and you um, outline the fact that you've been to Tarawa recently, uh, in many of the developed capital islands, they have adopted uh, building and planning mechanisms that are are, are very essentially Western in their approach. So they now build Mm -hmm. uh, out of concrete, they've got roads, they've got fixed structures, which are are much less amenable to sort of shifting and moving and changing as the island changes around them. And so this places um, a significant challenge on these communities on how they will uh, cope with uh, the accelerating nature of change into the future. Yeah, Um, it was really interesting going around Kiribati um, where I saw, especially on South Tarawa, I saw the uh, Ikiribati trying to expand their land because as as you know, South Tarawa is is experiencing a lot of population stress, but they're constantly um, trying to sandbag their land and extend into the lagoon or extend into the, the the ocean on the other side, crowbarring coral off to mm. from one place to reinforce. Do you think that that sort of reclamation would interfere with the natural dynamics of the atoll? Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've worked on Tarawa uh, m- many times, and one of our earlier uh, bits of research in this uh, fashion with Arthur Webb from uh, SOPAC at the time uh, we looked at some of the islands uh, in Tarawa, and in fact, uh, Basio and some of those populated islands are islands that have actually expanded the most uh, in our data set, largely through human intervention. And, oh. and what you're seeing on Tarawa is um, replicated in a lot of the atoll archipelagos is that the main capital island is essentially vastly overpopulated. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like any big city, you know, people want to come to, to, to the main draw card. And as a consequence, there simply isn't land. And then what you're seeing in Tarot is, is the locals being very creative in, yes. in actually building out structures to capture sand that's moving along the island and, and, and mm-hmm. create their own land. Many of the images that we see 
from Tarawa, not all, but many, uh, when houses, you see waves going over the crest and hitting the front of the house, are on some of those plots of land that have been entirely manufactured by people. Yeah. And these aren't, these aren't engineering designs, they're just locals going out and trying to, yeah. as you saw, push and sculpt land together. And, and essentially, they're building their houses at sea level. Uh, and, and so it's not surprising that we get these quite powerful and, and evocative images of, mm -hmm. of vulnerability uh, in those settings. But essentially, I would argue, what we're seeing in sites exactly like uh, urban Tarawa is a, a, an outcome of overpopulation and yeah. then poor planning of how you might manage that and, and, and close to the coast. Yeah, I mean, you, you touched on before about how how it's such an arresting image to see these um, just water kind of lapping at the edge of these different, um, uh, like, these habitations. <laughs> um, that have quite ingeniously been put there and, and, and extended. Mm. Um, I'm, I've read a lot about Kiribati in particular. And first of all, I, I just to backtrack a little bit, um, I noticed that in your theory and reading your paper, uh, one theory about atoll expansion is that it relies on large storms depositing uh, sand onto the coral atoll. Mm. Um, and you, you support that strongly. I'm just thinking that because Kiribati is at the equator and there's no cyclones, do, do, do your findings that are from uh, Tuvalu apply to Kiribati? Um, broadly, yes, and I'll explain what I mean. Um, and it's important that your listeners uh, kind of understand that the islands that these communities live on mm. uh, are made up of materials that all grow on the surrounding coral reef. Uh, so the islands are made up of broken up coral, uh, shells, foraminifera, uh, anything that lays down a skeleton as it's living on the coral reef. Yeah. When it dies, it gets ground up and waves and currents can drive those sediments to form islands. And the essentially the maximum elevation of an island is uh, controlled by the run up of waves against the shore face that can push sand up and pile it up. Now, one of the differences between Tuvalu and Kiribati, as you point out, is that Kiribati is more equatorial, so it has less major cyclones, although it still does get strong energy events, whereas Tuvalu is, is in a much stormier setting, and much of many of the islands in Tuvalu are made up of uh, boulders and, and, and cobbles of the size of your fist, uh, to the yeah. size of to the size of um, a chair, uh, and 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 so what we noticed there is that, in, for example, in 1972, a major cyclone ripped up millions of cubic meters of coral off the floor reef and just dumped it on the reef, and yeah. over the, the the ensuing 20 years, that material was reworked by waves onto the islands. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the reasons why those islands grew. In the uh, Kiribati setting. Uh, the, the islands are more comprised of smaller sand, sand sized materials. And so they uh, are, are also being delivered from the reef flat. So it's about how productive your coral reef is. And in the uh, Tarawa context, it's about how productive the coral, but also foraminifera, little unicellular organisms that grow on and uh, the turfs and crevices on the reef, how productive they are. And uh, while I haven't physically measured this, we have sites where there has been 
accumulation of these sediments in orders of tens of metres over the last several decades, mm. which suggests that sand production off those reefs currently is still viable and continuing uh, to feed some of those islands. Right, right. That's really interesting. Um, I'd, I'd like to move now uh, to the part, to the discussion aspect of, uh, of the paper that you published. And... There was a sociolo there's a heavy sociological aspect and I read about Kiribati and it's a lot of articles about how it's drowning and this fate is a foregone conclusion. Mm -hmm. uh, do you did you get the feeling um, when you published this paper that the climate movement is in danger of overplaying the hand and crying wolf with these coral atolls and that we kind of need a, as if we need a sacrifice to prove to climate deniers that it's real. Yeah, this is a problem that we've had, well, I've had for 15 years with my work, and that's mm. we're trying to present uh, robust evidence of the changes that mm -hmm. we see, and we're trying to stimulate a thoughtful discussion of what this means for islands. Unfortunately, as, as, as soon as we publish some material, that we lose control of how people may or may not interpret that. Uh, and, and, you know, our work has been used by climate deniers around the world to say, I oh, see the islands aren't drowning, so climate mm. change is, is, is a load of nonsense. Now, we have never, ever said that. Um, uh, we, are, we fully accept that the climate is changing. What we're trying to understand is what does that mean for the islands and the island communities? And while the, this debate is either a, you either believe the islands are vanishing or, yeah. or, or you don't, that's, that's not very helpful because while... <laughs> the prevailing narrative is still that many of these islands are going to be swept away and many of these nations are going to become environmental refugees, uh, that tends to then uh, mean that we're not having a very thoughtful discussion of, well, how do island communities deal with this? Because if you think you're not going to be there, the only option is you've got to move. Yeah. Uh, and so there's a whole army of researchers and sociologists and, and, and scientists out there who are largely convinced that we've got to think about how you move these communities off, off their nations. Mm -hmm. um, our work is trying to say, well, hang on, let's, let's just think about this. Um, what's actually happening to the islands? And sure, I can point to some islands that have got smaller in the last 30 or 40 years, but many have got bigger. <laughs> and, and we're trying to just say, well, let's just hold up here. These, these island countries are going to face some pretty significant challenges over the next 20 to 50 years. Um, can, we, can we inform that discussion with telling island communities and countries the kinds of things they're going to have to deal with? So if islands are going to start migrating, that's fine. How fast are they going to migrate? Can we tell countries that these kinds of islands, and maybe they're smaller sand islands, those ones are more susceptible to erosion, whereas you have some much larger islands made of gravels and sands, which are much more stable, and they're getting larger. That gives you some power to make some planning decisions of how you look after your community yeah. um, and, and allows them some self-determination about what their future may look like. Um, then there's another division, and that is that uh, a lot of the material we see or are presented with come from the very urban islands that you visited, so South South Tarawa, and if you go to the Marshall Islands, it's Majuro, and if you go to Tuvalu, it's often 
uh, Fogafar Lane, if you go to the Maldives, it's this Malay, which is this most ridiculously populated island that you can imagine, yes. 140,000 people on one square kilometre. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, now that represents, those islands represent probably less than half a percent of the total land area in these nations. And my yeah. argument is, well, our discussion we're trying to promote is that while those urban capitals have largely undermined their, their natural behaviour, you have 99.95% of your uh, land still available to you. So what's happening in those places? How do you work with that? And then what are the planning mechanisms you can start to think about um, that allow you to develop in different ways and um, you know, provide spaces for your people and economic opportunities? Yeah, oh, that's yeah, that's really interesting, and it's it's. I guess, have you seen any of um, any any response from any of these Pacific Island nations to your findings and begin to act on them? Uh, well, we have in the Maldives. I mean, they're different oceans, right. but the problem's largely the same. Um, they've changed their message, and and this is where the work that I do then gets uh, caught up in in sort of a political discussion in, in mm -hmm. many ways. Um, and, and, and so how that expresses itself, as you alluded to before, is that, uh, you know, many people would believe that these small island nations don't really have much of a future. Mm -hmm. And po politically, small island nations have used that as a powerful uh, vehicle of discussion when they go to yep. the UN. And, and being vulnerable, uh, can be, has been historically quite helpful for them in leveraging support and funding and, 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 and international aid. Um, so to turn from that narrative to one that says, well, hang on, we're going to be here, but we need help in how we stay here and adapt and manage, yes. is something that the Maldives have done. And so they are looking uh -huh. at uh, using their land resources and looking at regional centres of economic development. Yep. Uh, they have adopted adaptation. I mean, it's a it's it's an interesting uh, comparison to the Pacific. Uh, it's in some ways it's it's not a you're not comparing apples and apples because of the general level of technological advancement in the Maldives is probably an order of magnitude higher than we see yep. in the remote areas of the Pacific. So they have access to a lot of the engineering and equipment that comes out of the Middle East. Uh, so they have big dredges. They will dredge up islands. Um, they will make islands in, in, a, in, a, in a matter of months. Um, wow. And they've done this um, just north of the capital island of Malé, uh, where they have dredged up an island that will is intended to host over 100,000 people over the next 20 years. So yeah. they've been very proactive about how you stay um, uh, in, in their lands. They've taken a technological uh, approach to this. Um, but... I still have discussions with the, some of the government officials and say, but you've still got islands that are 10 kilometres in area with almost no one living on them. So you have these resources at your disposal. So you can spend millions of dollars on dredging um, or you can think about how you plan. We take that back um, into the Pacific. They're still not quite at that um, point yet to make that decision. So after our article on Tuvalu came out, um, the Prime Minister of Tuvalu certainly wasn't very happy with us and 
largely accused us of trying to undermine Tuvalu and international negotiations and try to just discredit wow. the work. Uh, we found that disappointing because uh, we're just trying to lay an evidence base for yeah. the Tuvalu and nation to make decisions about how it could use the land that it has. Um, Kiribati, similarly, uh, has yeah. kind of oscillated around this argument. Their president, uh, Anota Tong, uh, was, was very vociferous in, in playing the vulnerability angle of this discussion. Uh, the, um, the new president, more more, he uh, stimulated a, 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 a session at the last General Assembly in, in New York, which I spoke at, where they, we were talking mm. about different adaptation solutions for uh, Kiribati. So they're starting uh, down, down that track. So it's variable depending on which um, atoll nation we, we, we talk about. Ah, oh, that's so interesting, especially just how dominant the narratives become and how difficult it is for countries like Kiribati to change, shift the narrative outside, how much of it is determined by you know, how they're written about rather than how they write about themselves. Um, yeah. And, and, that, and this is a challenging thing. And, it's, and there's, at no point would we say Kiribati has nothing to worry about. That's the last thing we would say. It's going to be faced with some major issues around flooding, uh, islands deciding they're changing their shape and position. You know, how, how do these countries deal with that? And, and to date, they're not really having, they're not really prepared to sit down and think about what that means for them and what that means for their planning structures. And then it's fair to say that um, we are dealing with, in some cases, some of the most least developed countries in the world. So they don't have uh, sophisticated and large planning systems and, uh, yeah. and, and uh, engineering systems that would help support adaptation. So they, they need a lot of help and support. And uh, if, I, if I put on my, my cynical hat for, for a few moments, um, many developed countries don't really want this in this current political climate to be accepting in hundreds of thousands of additional environmental refugees into their countries. Yeah. And, and so I would argue that developed countries have an invested interest in increasing the amount of aid into Pacific Island nations to yeah. figure out how they do stay and live where they want to be. Yeah, I mean, in many ways, a lot of your research, it, sh it should have arrived about 15 years ago so that there's not that, that massive lag between, you know, development adapting to the current science because it just takes so long. But thank you so much for having for coming on the show, Paul, and best, best of luck in Vancouver. If I see you on the beach with your micrometer, I'll come over and say hello. Uh, pleasure. Thanks very much. Thank you. This is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yauru country, and it's great to be down in Melbourne and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. I have on the phone now Dr. Aaron Jenkins. Dr. Jenkins is from the University of Sydney School of Public Health. He and I are working on a project in Fiji at the moment to try and build a predictive model of, amongst other things, how waterborne diseases will spread differently as a result of climate change. Driving through the streets of Suva with Dr. Jenkins, I got an understanding for his primary preoccupation, that of planetary health. Dr. Jenkins, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks. Happy to be here. 
Uh, so when you explained the idea of planetary health to me in Fiji, it felt at the same time revolutionary and like it was common sense. Can you describe the uh, planetary health ethos to our listeners, please? Sure. Um, well, planetary health, put simply, is the health of human civilization and the natural systems on which it depends. Um, so there have been a whole variety of different field developments uh, recently and in the past um, <clears throat> that uh, are at this nexus of environment and health and um, sustainability. So uh, planetary health is, is, you know, the latest of many field developments in this, uh, along this theme. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, I guess, yeah. Uh, so can you just explain for a sec why it took so long uh, for such an idea to take hold? Well, it, it hasn't. So the, the thing is that, that uh, we all, we recognize that there are complex connections between health of animals, humans, environments, and the planet at large. And this isn't really conceptually new. Mm. Uh, you know, such ways of conceptual, conceptualizing health are, are rooted in ancient and diverse ways of knowing central to many indigenous knowledge systems and dating back at least as early as Hippocrates in hmm. the Western, Western knowledge traditions. So um, Hippocrates wrote in, in uh, around 400 BC uh, <laughs> a thing on airs, waters and places, which spoke specifically about um, how... Uh, you know, the state of the environment was, is, well, reflecting the state of health. Yeah, wow. Um, so has, has there been resistance, fast forwarding to today, has there been resistance to accessing different academic silos and kind of connecting them to this, this holistic idea? <laughs> well, absolutely. I mean, so... You know, the sectors that serve environmental management and conservation and those uh, serving human health and well-being, they've kind of, to an extent, been guilty of, of inward-looking, uh, centralising tendencies where decision-making and resource distribution is, is vertically hierarchical and is less accountable or knowing, knowable to others. And so breaking down these boundaries of these, what we call quote unquote silos is, is a challenge to the status quo. So it's not the way things are. In this case, you know, those that are involved in, in environmental management and in biodiversity conservation, um, they have to change the internal priorities and learn how to speak the language of health and act as advocates for health, um, whereas public health practitioners in a broader context have to also elevate in priority the environmental determinants of health 
And so there's these reciprocal requirements for, for interventions that, that have to involve multiple sectors. And it's about learning how to, to speak each other's language and valuing, valuing the, the whole, if you like. Right. So you've, uh, I'd like to move now to the, to the Pacific. You spent two decades working throughout the Pacific. That's right. Um, yeah. And so have you found changes in the way that disease has spread thanks to the change in climate? Well, um, I mean, let's just say that, that climate and climate always has to be mediated through a place, right? So that place is going to be an ecology, a social, you know, a social ecology of a place. And um, as climate changes, the that the impacts of that on health are, are you know varied and complex. And that's you can get you know direct exposure to extreme weather events and people can get hurt um, or you have these indirect effects where um, ecological disruption to a catchment for example or a water catchment for example it can uh, result in increased disease burden through you know heightened rainfall or drought or some combination of that um, impacting on the ecology of a place um, or there's these diffuse effects that we see like increased mental health problems or societal dysfunction um, that's due to loss of livelihoods or lack of basic resources like water, food and housing have kind of ongoing mental health effects. So um, the, in the Pacific, um, there are a high number of, of natural disasters um, and it's rapidly changing ecologically and the effects of a changing climate are multiplied through that lens. And, um, and so, yes, in, in an answer to your question, you know, the effects of, of changing climate on health are, are multiple and, and complex. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Really interesting. Um, now, you're, when we were in Suva together, you were describing how you're really into diving and you were explaining to me this project, which is um, studying the cor coral between the two largest islands in Fiji and how, how it's res shown resilience to increased temperature. Can you describe that project for us very quickly? Sure. Um, so, essentially... Um the, there are 50, there's 50 reefs around the world that have been chosen because they exhibit a particular resilience to increasing sea surface temperatures due to climate change. And um, so there's been some investment by uh, the Bloomberg Foundation, primarily uh, through partners such as Wildlife Conservation Society to work with these uh, to work on the management and protection of, of these 50 reefs around the world that have a particular quality um, that uh, allows them to be more resilient to temperature change. And um, so 
basically the 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 reef between the two biggest islands of Fiji um, in that Bly Waters Passage um, are, are one of those 50 reefs. And so it happens to coincidentally be located um, at the downside of some of the water catchments that we're working in in mm-hmm. Fiji. So, um, yeah, so we, we're basically working um, in that particular aspect of the project on erosion mitigation primarily in catchments to increase water quality and uh, reduce the pressure on the reefs downstream and so that's what we're um, that's what we're doing you know in this particular part of the world as uh, part of that 50 reefs or vibrant reefs project as it's called yeah right right and yeah that's such an interesting project and we really interesting to 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 follow that for so for our listeners where can they find out more about your work and that that project um so uh there's a number of places uh where you can always go to the planetary health platform uh, website at the university of sydney uh where i'm uh staff um you can also go to the uh, Bloomberg Philanthropies page and find out more about the 50 Reefs project in specifically. Mm-hmm. The, the work in Fiji, um, which we're calling the Wish Fiji project, which is Watershed Interventions for Systems Health. Um, it's the best place to get information on that is probably the Indo-Pacific Centre for Health Security wow. website. And they it's one of the funded projects um, under their portfolio of projects and there's information about the project on that site. Awesome. Well, I'll, I'll be sure to keep everyone up to date as, uh, as we keep working on WISH. So thanks so much for coming on the show, Aaron. No problem at all. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have left for our show tonight on Kiribati. Thank you so much to Dr. Paul Kench, Aaron Jenkins and Pelanese Alfoa. Also, thank you to Ataya and his family, whose music we listen to on the show. Now, I'll leave you with a little bit more of that music. You are listening to Beyond Zero Emissions Community Radio Show. This is 3CR. Ya en ni ni da ki ni ka borok